Welcome to the Pre-Raphaelite podcast of the Pre-Raphaelite Society. My name is Sherry. I'm joined here today with Esther, and we are with Suzanne Fagents Cooper, the author of How We Might Live at Home with Jane and William Morris. She has also written books on John Ruskin, Why Ruskin Matters, Effie Gray, and the Pre-Raphaelite Art in the Victoria and Albert Museum. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure. So just to get us started, uh, tell us what drew you to talking about the Pre-Raphaelites? I, um, I was very interested in the Pre-Raphaelites since I was a teenager. And um, my mother was given the catalogue for the 1984 Tate Britain exhibition, the Tate Gallery exhibition. Uh, I never saw the exhibition, I was too young, but um, we, we had it at home and I just remember becoming you know, completely focused on it and wanting to learn more about these artists. And also the, the thing that drew me in, I'm, I'm also interested in English literature, I'm interested in history. And so through looking at these paintings and reading the poems and learning about the people, I then was able to think about, I don't know, reading Dante or reading Chaucer or learning about saints' lives and all these other wonderful you know, windows on, on, on history, which the Pre-Raphaelites see to open for me. I, I can completely relate to that, not necessarily <laughs> that uh, exhibition, but being drawn in by one window and being shown all these other windows into um, their lives and into their art and poetry. So, your newest book, How We Might Live at Home with Jane and William Morris. Tell us a little more about that. So I've been interested in women's lives uh, for many years now, and they're always seen as uh, simply a face, or to use that word that I try to avoid at all costs, a muse. Um, and she, this didn't seem to ring true for me because, you know, this is a woman who grew up effectively in Islam. And yet the more you learn about her, the more she is able to inhabit this extraordinary world of art and literature. She's going on holiday with members of the aristocracy. She is holding, you know, holding court, as it were, in her in her house. Um, and I wanted, you know, to understand a little bit more about how her relationship with with William Morris worked as well. So. Um, about 10 years ago, it was um, Jan Marsh and Frank Sharp published her letters. And obviously, there was no way I could write my book um, without, uh, without that. Um, and also without, I, I did check with Jan Marsh that she wasn't going to re-engage with, with Jane on a sort of a, a large scale. So um, as, she, as she wasn't and she didn't know anybody else who was going to write this book, I thought, well, now is the time. I, you know, I want to, I want to bring Jane into three dimensions, I suppose, off, you know, off the canvas and into the room, because she's always there. She's always busy. Um, and then through her letters, we get a sense of her still as quite a shy person, as somebody who um, is sort of measured in her interactions with the world. But, you know, she is William Morris's partner for decades. And that struck me as being really important. I, I just got my hands on the book. Um... As I mentioned, I'm in the US and so it's not readily available yet. And it, it's just such a fascinating read. I, I love the introduction with Morris and we get a little bit more about him as a young man. 
but also how you bring Jane into the fold and go into her background. And like you mentioned, the, the common term for her being, you know, always she was an artist muse and you see from the very beginning when you bring her in, she's so much more than just their model that she is more to them and she does come right into the grouping. Um, So I've really enjoyed reading it so far. I just, like I said, just got my hands on it and been a wonderful read. So in it, you talk about how they like to, both of them enjoy making their home a special place. what did you find that was interesting about how they were making their home? It was such a collaborative enterprise. That's what I really loved about it. And I think from the outset, one of the reasons why their partnership, their marriage works so well is that they see the potential in each other. Um, so when they're looking at their houses, they recognize they've got, you know, particularly at Red House early on, they've got so much space. Um, and, you know, Morris is wealthy. When Rossetti is introducing him to his friends, he introduced him as practically a millionaire. Um, and so they have all this generosity of space that they can, in, you know, bring friends in. And Jane, who'd grown up expecting to be a servant, is now in charge of four, four servants. And so they can hold open house. They can have... Uh, Georgie Byrne Jones coming to stay. They can have the Ford Maddox Brownses coming to stay. They can have the Rosettis and Elizabeth Siddle coming to stay. So there's a sense of, of creating a gathering place. Um, and Jane, as the hostess, is very much involved in that, not just by sort of making sure there are enough beds or making sure there is enough food, but actually encouraging creativity. So um, it, it's thanks to Georgie Byrne Jones, especially, that we know so much about those. Uh, years at Red House and she describes it as somewhere where the women would work together uh, stitching or in George's case she'd be doing uh, book illustration um, and you know they'd be talking to each other supporting each other and it it's just struck me that those networks of the women uh, in that household are just as uh, long-lasting um, as the networks of, of men and also creative spaces so you know yes William and um, Rossetti and Burns are thinking about stained glass they're thinking about painted cabinets um, but the women are working on the other sort of big product for what's going to be Morris and company they're working on the embroideries and um, you know the textiles and so these things are happening side by side in Red House and that carries on through uh, Jane and William's marriage so once they set up the firm, once they set up Morris and Company, their house is always a show home. And so Jane is part of the show. She is on display um, as a creative woman, as a model. Um, and, you know, she is helping to sell the idea of the beautiful home. Do you think that Jane saw that as an undue pressure or do you feel like she sort of embraced this role that she was given? It's very hard to say because she, particularly in the early years, she doesn't leave us many records. I mean, the, the letters that we have are really useful, but they, they don't cover a lot of those sort of bigger questions that we might be asking. Um, they're often quite practical. They're about looking after the children. They're about arrangements uh, for holidays, things like that. Um, I think that it took her a while to embrace it, to feel that she could embody this um, this beauty and this ideal. I, I, think, I think in the early days, 
she probably didn't quite believe uh, that she was as beautiful as everyone made out because she was not conventionally pretty. She was tall and she was a bit gangly and quite flat chested and had this amazing hair, but it wasn't, you know, she didn't fit the model of, of a Victorian um, cover girl, really. Um, so, you know, in the early days, you, you see her particularly, she's sort of tucking herself in, you know, often in the photographs, you feel that she's sort of stooping, that she's trying to make less of herself. Um, but I, I do feel that once she recognises that, yeah, people are going to talk about her, people are going to um, look at her, that, you know, she starts to address that and engage with it and starts to embrace the possibilities of dressing slightly differently, uh, of being um, yeah, part of part of the uh, experience of coming to uh, Hammersmith, of coming to, or before that, to Queen's Square. Um, you know, this, this is what people expect of her. And she stayed quite quiet. She didn't, and this is the thing that people hold against her. You know, George Bernard Shaw says she was the silentest woman I ever met. But that's because the men around her are talking all the time. You know, she's surrounded by men who just don't shut up. And also she is probably quite conscious of her, you know, she's learning, she's listening, but maybe doesn't want to be voicing her opinion because she may disagree with what's going on or voicing her opinion because she's slightly anxious about how that opinion will be, will be heard. Yeah, if I may, if I may jump in here, uh, I just love the way you capture all of that, uh, Jane's um, fastest travels in your book, because I'm also <laughs> reading it right now, and I'm really enjoying that, and how you, um, yeah, because you give Jane's, and Jane's work, the attention it actually deserves, uh, and it's really um, lovely to see, because I, I don't know, but the way you write about her whole process um, of coming into, yeah, coming, uh, being in touch with this group of young artists, um, getting to know Maurice and everyone in there. And I, the way, the process of her, her marriage and everything, I just really like the way, because you can actually imagine it yourself. And you were saying that we, uh, unfortunately, we do not have that much uh, information about Jane, especially uh, after they got, I, <laughs> I forget. Uh, engaged. They were engaged. Engaged, exactly. When they were yes, engaged. Yes. Yeah, exactly. We have like a full year, a gap, and we don't know exactly what's, what is going on in Jane's life. So how was the process of, yeah, your research process uh, around this whole, well, around Jane's life? Because we know so much about everyone else. Well, not maybe not everyone, but especially all the men around her, but about Jane's life, there's still so much that we didn't know. So how was the research process behind that? Yeah, it was really, it was really difficult uh, and to, to know exactly what's going on in Jane's life in sort of the late 1850s uh, after she meets um, the group of artists. And so some of it has to be conjecture. And I try to highlight where there are things that I've I, you know, I'm, I'm making an educated guess, I suppose. Um, we do know, for example, that um, we can make a comparison with Elizabeth Siddle, who uh, John Ruskin was very interested in, and he arranged for her to stay with Dr. Ackland and Sarah Ackland in Oxford um, for some months, sort of to be, to be groomed, I suppose, to be, you know, brought into polite society. 
so we know that that is something that did happen to Elizabeth Siddle and she did not enjoy it. Uh, she didn't like being made kind of a pet of the household. So you could imagine that um, that was something that perhaps would be suggested for, for Jane. And I try to look at the people in their circle who might have made house room for her um, so she could learn how to run a household as she needed to when she got to Red House. So the Acklands are possibilities. Um, I quite like the idea of her spending time with Philip Webb's mother, but I think that's less likely just because she and Philip Webb had such a, a good relationship, an interesting and close relationship throughout their lives. Um, and he was already living in Oxford and he has a sympathy with her, um, which, you know, I, I don't know that that's very likely, but I wanted to suggest that as a possibility. The other one, which I find oh, I'd love to know more about, uh, Edward Byrne-Jones makes this one suggestion that uh, Sarah Pattel, uh, Sarah Princep, as she became, was, took Jane up, that she was interested in Jane uh, in the early days. And that would be fascinating if, if Jane did spend some time with Sarah Princep, who was one of the Pattel sisters, you know, uh, sister to uh, Julia Margaret Cameron, and had this sort of salon where she entertained people like uh, Watts and Ben Jones and Rossetti from time to time. So, and also had a very distinctive uh, style of performing her, her presence, you know, dressing and, and inhabiting her space. Um, so there was just this kind of tantalizing glimpse of, of some relationship there with, with the Pattles. And I would love to know more about it. So I just, you know, in a way what I'm doing is putting stuff out there and saying, you know, there are gaps, there's this gap about the princeps, there's a gap about Bessie Burden, for example. There's a, you know, the, the gap about the engagement generally. Um, if people have got any insight into that, you know, I'd like, I'd like to know and we could take it forward. Now, I do, to switch modes a little bit, you mentioned John Ruskin earlier as possibly being someone who helped find someone to help uh, Jane Morris uh, learn about how to live in society and, and in the role she was taking on. Uh, I know you've done several projects around Ruskin. One, um, the book about Effie Gray, and then also uh, Why Ruskin Matters. Uh, what draws you back repeatedly to the topic of John Ruskin? I think it goes right back to what I was saying about that exhibition in 1984, that there are certain figures who come out of it as sort of uh, godfathers of the Pre-Raphaelites and Ruskin is one of them, um, that he uh, was so much of a mentor in the early days for um, the, uh, you know, the original Pre-Raphaelites, um, that they were reading his books and then um, you know, trying to, to understand what it meant in practice. Uh, and then in uh, the 1850s, when uh, Edward Burne Jones and William Morris got to know him, and it was a great, it was one of those moments when you read their letters, particularly Burne Jones' letters, he's so excited that Ruskin is coming to see them. You know, this is, this is a man who is sort of uh, from a different level, a different generation, somebody who's, who's, who's already established himself as a voice for, uh, for British art, and Ruskin is going to be with them, having, you know, having tea with them. Um, so I think for, you know, anybody interested in understanding how the Pre-Raphaelites sort of uh, philosophized about their work or imagined their work uh, being 
presented to a wider public and Ruskin is critical to that because he is the one who is writing uh, to the newspapers. He's the right one who's writing at the Academy notes about how to interpret these, these works of art. Beyond that, what I find interesting about Ruskin is that he is, a, and people may disagree, but I find him a very vulnerable person because he always makes himself available when he's writing. Um, and so he's not writing um, uh, for praise or fame. He is writing because he thinks it, it really matters that we understand how to see clearly, which is the title I gave to uh, my little book about him. Um, but in the process, he becomes almost unmanageable. You know, he just writes constantly. And so I worked on an exhibition in 2019 at um, York Art Gallery here, and then it moved over to Kendall in the Lake District. Um, where we were trying to show his relationship with Turner, because um, he, you know, he begins writing modern painters as a critique of Turner, and it, it goes from being sort of a, an essay into five volumes about what painting can be, and mountains, and geology, and glaciers, and clouds, and you know, it just everything becomes fascinating to him, and I love that about him that you know he. He genuinely has a, an enthusiasm for the world, the world of what of outside the window. Um, and when we were trying to put this exhibition together, we were also trying to deal with his his other concerns. You know, he has major mental health problems, which I think it's important to to be conscious of. That we are aware that you know none of the people we're writing about in the past are are, are infallible. They are. You know, they they have their their concerns, their their problems, and and sometimes that helps us to to recognise that we can't expect the world to be perfect. And he also, John Ruskin, has this awareness of pollution and what he calls the storm clouds of the nineteenth century. And so, in the exhibition, we were trying to point to the fact that you know the idea that industrialization changes the climate, changes um, the, the pollution levels within. Uh, the environment. These are not new ideas. Ruskin was writing about them in the 1880s. And because he was such a, a strange person, people discounted him. They said he was mad. And in a way, he was mad in certain ways. When you read his diaries, he was clearly, and he understood it, he was insane at times. He was paranoid. He was, uh, uh, he recognized that in himself. But his concern about the environment is absolutely real and grounded in his observations. He's keeping a diary, he's making uh, visual notes constantly since the 1840s. He does know what he's talking about. Um, so Ruskin, yes, is a complicated, but, but I like complicated. We shouldn't make it difficult for people to engage with complications. So what I did in To See Clearly, you know, those 39 volumes of his co complete works, his collected works, I tried to, I was immersed in them for the exhibition. And so I tried to bring out, I suppose, the key themes to my eyes, not, you know, other people will have other, other Ruskins. Um, so I was trying to make a handbook. And it is like that, it's a small book and people keep it in their handbags, they keep it in their pockets and they, you know, they quite often show me their copy of, of, of their Ruskin book. You know, they've made notes in it, they put bookmarks in, they carry it around into field work, writing their own poetry. It's a kind of jumping off point. And so that ability to engage with the natural world so intently 
um, has then helped other people um, to take take a step back, I suppose, and to recognize the beauty and the fragility of the natural world. And so Ruskin is a wonderful way into that, despite all his flaws, or possibly because of all his flaws, because we can recognize his flaws. Um, so yeah, Ruskin, I don't necessarily like him. I think he would be a very difficult person to have dinner with. Um, but on the other hand, he would, he, you know, he gives a great lecture and he writes so, so beautifully. And I think that's when I was looking at Effie, Effie Ruskin, who married him in 1848. I think that's why she married him is because the courtship was all by letter. You know, he, she knew him as a young girl. He, she visited him as a teenager when she was a teenager. But then when it came to being engaged to him, their engagement was entirely through letters. And Ruskin, you know, he threw himself into that possibility of writing love letters. Of course, it's compelling. Um, the reality of being married to him is something rather different, but on paper, he is marvelous. I think that's a really humanizing fact too, is as you mentioned, he, he was so prolific and so marvelous in his writing, but at the same time, as you learn about Ruskin, you become aware of all these flaws, but I think that's what makes him so marvelous in a way. Like you said, as a person, probably would not enjoy being around him, but to learn, you know, to see what, he, how he saw the world and how it, it you know, engulfed him. And um, I think that's probably why he still has that sense of popularity is because we can appreciate the work he did, but at the same time realize he was human. And I, I think that is a, a part that draws me back to him repeatedly. Uh, I'm so fascinated by his writing, but at the same time, I'm just sort of horrified, you know, like, oh gosh, you know, yes. he has so much, <laughs> so much going on. Um, I think it's been very interesting meeting people who are uh, inspired by Ruskin because they come from so many different backgrounds. And so we have um, the Guild of St. George, which is his charity that he established. And that sort of philanthropic thread that runs through much of Ruskinian thinking and writing, uh, and then is played out in, in real life still now. Um, and so I meet people who are, you know, who, who are woodsmen, you know, who are working in forestry. I meet people who are beekeepers. I meet, meet people who are doing work, you know, social work with vulnerable adults. And these are all people who have, been you know transformed by by a part of Ruskin's world uh, and the way that he he expresses that view of the world so it's not just academics it's not just art historians although he is an amazing watercolorist and sometimes you know his watercolors are just knockout even though he never intended for them to be exhibited they were for teaching um, but his watercolors are so very beautiful so there are all these factors all these ways into Ruskin which I think keep him alive in, you know, in, in teaching and in you know, good works. I think he'd, he'd explain it as good works, yeah. So when you wrote about Effie Gray, is this also wanting to bring another female, show them in a different light? Or what drew you into Effie's story? I was at a crossroads myself when I started writing about Effie. I was leaving the Victoria and Albert Museum, the V&A, where I'd been working for over a decade. 
Uh, I was moving away and I was trying to think about what I could usefully do, where there were gaps that I could fill. And um, a number of people said that there were, was material out there uh, related to Effie Gray as she, and then she became Effie Ruskin and then she became Effie Millet, Lady Millet, um, when she married John Everett Millet. So it struck me that this was, a, that was, this was useful work for me, but also because she, she was a groundbreaker. She never intended to be. She, she had to stick up for herself and, um, and separate from her husband and put herself through some very intrusive uh, questioning examinations. And people still, you know, they only have one thing in their head when they talk about Effie Gray, you know, and it's not, it's not what she'd want to be remembered for, uh, you know, what happened on her wedding night. And so it was trying to, again, make her into a, a more a fully fledged story um, because her relationship with Ruskin was only a very small part of her life. You know, she was married to Ruskin 1848 to 1855, finally, um, it all kind of finished. So seven years. And then she was married to Millet for decades. You know, that to me was, was worth looking into. What is it like to be married to one of the uh, most successful artists in in, in British history, you know, somebody who is so prolific, who is so talented, who is so you know, needed um, by, you know, by different groups, you know, first of all, by the pre-Raphaelites and then, you know, within this sort of society and portraiture, but also, you know, he, he was, you know, he was such a, uh, an impressive artist in terms of tackling contemporary uh, style changes. You know, he was there at the beginning of aestheticism as well as at the beginning of the pre-Raphaelites. And to me, you know, I wanted to understand what Effie's role was in that, or just what she would have experienced, what she'd have seen and heard. So yes, there were these amazing opportunities to, to read her family letters. So the letters that um, were to do with the Ruskin marriage had been edited by Mary Lutchins years ago. But the later letters, the ones relating to the, the Millet marriage, had not been tackled. Um, there were, you know, piles and piles of them that the family still owned and they lent to Tate Britain so that I could read them in the archive there. And so you're reading letters from her mother and her father and her sisters, as well as her own letters. And so you get a picture not just of an artistic world, but also a, a bigger picture of the Victorian world, where she's got family in Australia she's got family in America and there's this uh, and she's obviously a Scottish background so all these you get slightly different versions of the Victorian when you start to look at, at Effie because you realize that all these networks of kinship um, are, are there and supporting her um, as she makes her step to to leave Ruskin um, and then you know that's a step into the unknown she doesn't know that Millet is going to come and kind of rescue her in societal terms um, she she doesn't know that he didn't need to do that um, but he does and so she's able to in, engage with this you know amazing late victorian society in london in scotland in the south of france um, you know i can show all those aspects of her life and also through her talk about other women so talking about her mother and her sisters and her daughters and how Victorian women's experience was not monolithic. That Effie had one experience, her mother had another experience, her daughters had a completely different experience because they were growing up 
in in London and traveling up and down to, to Scotland. You know, Mary, her daughter, travels to Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. Um, her sister Sophie, who is the subject of that beautiful painting by Millet as a teenager, I wanted to understand about her because she, again, she was only ever given one line in most of the histories of pre-Raphaelitism. And that line was that she was unwell. And what was, what was going on with Sophie? So I was able to uncover Sophie's mental health problems, her anorexia, her difficult marriage, and just, you know, make her real rather than just a, a single sort of footnote. So it was partly for Sophie's sake as well as for Effie's sake that I wanted to write about that family. That scene again, like making them look like humans because they were human people, that they had their ups and downs, they had the problems, they had their, yeah, so it's very interesting to give to give us as readers um, the opportunity to get to know them more and more in kind of like more in, in the flesh, so to speak, to getting to know them for real. And so I guess that by, by what you were saying about Effie, that if you had access to tons and tons of letters that were never tackled. Uh, so in comparison to Jane, for example, like, uh, did you feel like there was a difference because maybe um, for, um, for Jane, um, you found less, I don't know, uh, documents or was it, or were the, the documents, letters or whatever the, you found, were they easily accessible or not? Or how was that? Well, the interesting thing about Jane's letters is that the only ones that had previously been published were the ones between her and Rossetti mm -hmm. and her and Wilfie Skull and Blunt, uh, her poet lover um, from later on. And so it always gave a very skewed impression of who Jane was because you're only reading her letters to her lovers. Uh, and you don't get a sense of her letters, for example, to Philip Webb, who is this long-term friend, or uh, Crom Price, who is a great friend of hers, who's uh, you know, a teacher and involved early on in the, in the firm, but you know, moves on and gets another career. So you, you know, there was a lot of having to redress the balance and saying she's not just an adulterous woman, because the letters you write to your lover are going to be very different to the letters you write to um, you know, your, your children, um, which again don't, you know, a few survived to May, um, a few, you know, very few to, to, to William himself, actually. Um, and there are letters that I'd love to have found, for example, between her and Marie Spitali Stillman, who they were good friends. Um, and Spitali Stillman was a, you know, a, a model herself for Julia Margaret Cameron and a painter and the wife of a, a, a painter um, and a traveler. So, you know, she, had this, uh, this other view on the Victorian art world. And I'd love to have you know, listened in on their conversations. The thing that is always lacking when it comes to, to trying to understand Jane Morris is that she was so separated from her birth family. You know, Bessie Burden was there, her sister came with her, um, but she seems to have left her, uh, her parents and her brother behind um, in Oxford. And in fact, very recently, I met a woman called Jane Burden, who is descended from uh, Jane's brother, William. Um, and, you know, because her sister didn't have any children, her, her brother did have children. 
and she's a direct descendant, but they know nothing about what you know what happened with the the burden family after jane left they've got no family records that they can they can offer me so that was sort of a tantalizing moment but it's gone effie on the other hand one of the lovely things was building up a sense of her community of her family um you know she there are lots of letters wonderful letters from her father um who's incredibly supportive of her um and writes you know, clearly misses her when she's not in Scotland, misses her, um, you know, was writing to, misses her when he's looking after her children. I mean, the, the grandchildren are very often with her parents. So that sense of a, a functioning, complicated, not always easygoing kind of family was a lovely thing to come out of the Effie letters. Um, and then there are moments, Effie's mother's letters are really badly written you know, incredibly difficult to decipher. She crosses the, the page, you know, in both directions and her handwriting is dreadfully spidery. And it's just, oh, you look at a box of these things and think, I don't know what to do with this because it would take me my entire life to decode what she's saying. So what I did was sort of try and pinpoint certain key moments in Effie's story. And this is what you have to do with any biography, I think. You can't write everything. You say, well, you know, this is a slice and this is a slice and this is a slice. And you, you, you know, you, you look at that, that incident or that, um, or that object and you, you use that as a way in. So I took those slices to Effie's life and I thought, well, what was happening? I don't know, around the time when her sister Sophie died. Can we recover that? And mercifully, the letters that her mother wrote from Sophie's, as it turned out, deathbed, were legible so I was able to I was able to recover those last days that Sophie um, and her mother were together there may be big gaps there may be things I missed because I couldn't read her mother's handwriting um, you know the, the letters are still there it would be really interesting but I'm not going to do it to, to create an edited or to create an edition of those letters because they do tell us a lot about um, a particular uh, area of Victorian society, you know, traveling between Scotland and, and London in particular. Um, but it is a huge project and not one that I'm intending to undertake at the moment. Do you have any new projects you're working on um, now that you've finished your book on Jane and William? It's an odd moment because this is the book that I, I kind of needed to write. It's taken me a long time to get here. So the first book I did was on the Pre-Raphaelite collection at the V&A, and that was 20 years ago, 25 years ago nearly, um, because at that point, the Pre-Raphaelite collections, when I was working there, were, I mean, they still are to a certain extent, spread all around the, the building. You know, you've got paintings in one section, you've got textiles in another section, you've got stained glass in another section. So in a book, I was able to kind of create a, uh, a coherent narrative out of those objects and show how important it was for the decorative arts um, to be at the center of their practice, the pre-Raphaelite practice. You know, that there were so many moments where they were figuring out a particular subject or a, a, uh, or a, uh, a composition through textile design or through stained glass design, um, rather than, you know, as an easel painting. So for me, you know, I moved, I, that's where I started because that's really embedded in the object. And over the years, I've, I've tried to understand how biographies could be written, I suppose. I never intended to be a biographer, 
I intended to be a curator. You know, that's what I trained to be. You know, working with the objects, making nice displays, writing labels, you know, that, but as it turns out, people do want to hear these stories. And yeah, I could be writing all these things as nice little articles, journal articles. And I do write journal articles. You know, I, I write, you know, for the Ruskin Journal or I write for British Art Journal, whatever. But 12 people read them, maybe, if I'm lucky. Whereas if you're writing the story about, you know, with a big name like William Morris, hopefully more people will read about Jane and will then, then follow up those links. You know, we'll say, oh, there's that, there's that church down the road that's got that stained glass or there's a house around the corner um, where, you know, they've got, they've got something. Um, or just, you know, reading the poetry, going to the exhibitions. Hopefully this is opening up an understanding of women's history, but art history and the history of politics and socialism as well, which is such an important part of Morris's story, to all those people who wouldn't, wouldn't read a journal article, wouldn't necessarily go to an exhibition about it. You know, they don't want to be lectured about socialism. Nobody really wants that. But if you're reading about Morris, it is inescapable. It, they don't want to be lectured about gender equality, but if you're reading about women's history, you have to ask those questions. It's like when you, you know, people don't want to be lectured about climate change, but if you're doing an exhibition about Ruskin, it gives you the opportunity to open that conversation up. Um, so I think that's what art history does is, it's a jumping off point. So in terms of what I'm going to do next, I haven't got another big project, um, partly because there's so much clamor in the world in terms of politics, in terms of uh, climate change. And, you know, that, that is what I've been learning is how then do I use my skills to make something worthwhile. So one of the things I've been doing, for example, is, is working on a local nature reserve. I mean, it's very small scale, working on a lo local nature reserve in York. Um, with a group of vulnerable adults um, doing ecotherapy, using Ruskin as, um, as a conversation starter. And we, you know, that has been really worthwhile for me. I've learned a huge amount um, just being in uh, this green space um, and listening to people who are making their own works of art as we go, writing their own poetry as we go. So I'm trying to work out Yes, you know, I want to write about Burne Jones and stained glass. And, you know, yes, I want to, you know, get I'm going next week to the Isle of Wight and I'm going to see Julia Margaret Cameron's house. And, you know, these things are happening. But it's really about. I suppose it's it's what Morris and Ruskin both do. They start with the art. They start with the paintings or the objects or the textiles. And then you realize that is not enough. It has to feed back into the real world and. Um, you know, Morris is a great companion, but, you know, he's so full of ideas and so full of uh, the joy of, of, of opening up beauty to as many people as possible. Um, you know, the commonwealth of beauty, I suppose. And there's this wonderful quotation um, that he, he gives us about the true secret of happiness that lies in taking a genuine interest in all the details of daily life. And so often as academics, we kind of push daily life away. And sometimes we just need to embrace it and say, you know, the people and the things around me are worth taking care of. That's a rather long answer to your question. <laughs> it's a wonderful answer. Yeah, um, it's a one. <laughs> one last 
thing. Um, in the in your book, you have these wonderful re Victorian recipes uh, taken from Jane's. Uh, I'm guessing recipe cards. Uh, have you tried any of the recipes yourself? Well, this is one of the really great things um, that came out of the book. I know it sounds, it's so not, you know, an academic art historian's thing to do, but um, I got a message about four years ago that there was a folder uh, of recipe notes at Kelmscott Manor. And I was chasing it for about 18 months before um, COVID. And I couldn't look, I mean, I knew it was, you know, the Society of Antiquaries, have it and it's at Kelmscott Manor but I couldn't get I couldn't get to see it before Covid and then of course everything closed down and Kelmscott Manor itself was um, being completely conserved from you know the the attics to the basement so well, it doesn't have a basement does it because it's floodplain but you know the attic it just the whole thing was being everything was taken out everything was put put away into store there's no way I was going to get to see these things just before Christmas last year I managed uh, with um, the help of Kathy Haslam, the uh, curator, um, she said they, they got them out of store, they've got the folder out of store, would I like to come and see them? And I spent a day, it's one of the most magical things, it's just, you know, when you just realise that doing this job is the best job in the world. So I spent the day at Kelmscott in the tapestry room, at the seated at the table with the Jane and Williams backgammon set on the same table as me. Uh, and they opened the box and there was a folder fill, filled with just scraps of paper really um, that had been come to, to Jane sometimes some of them she'd written some of them May Morris had written some of them were just things they'd been given by friends notes on the back of envelopes effectively um, and so I was able to transcribe them and photograph them they hadn't been properly transcribed or photographed by anybody at Calmscott it wasn't a priority so there they were we put them in the back of the book so people can try them what I love about them is they're really they're ordinary recipes. They're not fancy in any way. These are not big flowery dinner party things. These are just Cornish pasties or, you know, a, a fish recipe, a very simple fish recipe. We've been trying um, to sort of celebrate Jane Morris's birthday in October. We've been trying to get people to try out the recipes. So I've, I've done a couple. I've done um, uh, a simple cake uh, given to them by Ada. And Jan Marsh very kindly suggested this would be Ada Culmer who is, um, would have been Jenny Morris's carer and companion. Jenny Morris had epilepsy, and so she always had a carer with her. So Ada, uh, there's a little note on the recipe, Ada's fruitcake is, is Ada Culmer. And then there's, so I tried that and it's a really nice cake. It's not, it's a, it's not, it's not a luscious cake. It's a, it's a crumbly, lemony, fruity cake, but it's not like a big kind of Christmas cake. It's a very, it's a, it's a very straightforward cake you'd have with a cup of tea. So that was worth trying. It's so different from the cakes that we see on Bake Off or whatever. It's so different. And then I also tried um, the apple cake, which is a Swedish apple cake, a layers of apple and then a kind of almondy uh, cornflour um, batter, which is gorgeous, really gorgeous, and is gluten free as well, which helps here. So um, somebody else I know has tried the orange syrup cake, which does sound really lovely. She said it's stuck in the tin a bit. So I think that'll be my next one when we've got through the apple cake. I guess we will tie up. Esther, do you have any other questions before we tie up? No, I was actually, one of my questions was actually about the recipes, of course. <laughs> and yeah, and how many have, have to try yourself? Yeah, exactly. 
because I mean, it had to be amazing to to see them with your own eyes. I mean, to see them in Jane's handwriting and being like giving permission to, I mean, to see them, to photograph them for the first time and to publish them for the for everyone to see and try for the first time. That's this super interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. It was so lovely in particular to see the bread recipe. That was the one that really st stuck with me um, because I think it's a recipe that Jane was explaining uh, how to make bread to May before May got married. I don't know. This is conjecture. I was just trying to work out why would you write down a recipe for bread, which is clearly for somebody who doesn't really bake very much, you know, is not, com is not comfortable with baking. It's very, um, it's very tactile. It's very specific about, you know, and then you need a wooden spoon and then you do this. And she ends, Jane ends by saying, um, it needs some practice to make the loaves round and shapely. And I love the fact that even in something as simple as making bread, she is thinking about the aesthetics of it. She's thinking about how to make them look good on the plate um, and that it takes time. And all these things take time, whether it's making bread, whether it's embroidery, whether it's writing books, whatever it is, it takes practice. And Jane recognized that. And she was trying to also say to May, it doesn't matter if it doesn't turn out perfectly first time, you know, you'll get used to it. It takes time, it takes practice. So for me, that was a, a really lovely way of kind of grounding Jane um, and thinking about her in the kitchen, you know, working. She is not a passive person. She's not somebody who just is sitting in a corner with the vapors. She really isn't. She is always reading or stitching or in the kitchen or gathering her guests around her um, or supporting her family. I mean, they all needed a lot of support. She is holding them together. You know, we tend to think of her as the weak one, the sickly one. She is not weak. She is not sickly. She is holding up. She's carrying Jenny or carrying May when she's having a dreadful time emotionally or she's carrying William who is not well a lot of the time so yeah she is a strong and intelligent figure and of course William Morris gets the limelight I understand that he's an amazing uh, artist and writer and encourager he's such an encouraging person so it's just really lovely that that he found Jane and he encouraged her you know saw what she was possible what it's possible for her to create, saw what it's possible to do in a household. I love that. I love that you encompass that they had a, a, a true partnership and that he support, they, they supported one another. It, like you mentioned, you always have these visions of the Victorian woman with the vapors or, you know, they're especially someone who had servants and lived a, a better lifestyle that they weren't necessarily, you know, a productive person. So it, it's so wonderful to see that she had her hands in all these different aspects of their life and wasn't just, just you know, a, a person who was brought out for show or... <laughs> there were also these books that she made, which again, have not really been tackled. I mean, the recipes are kind of a lighthearted thing, a rep a representation of what it'd be like at home. But the, the, the little manuscript books that she makes, that she writes and, and designs and decorates, these are things which are in the British Library. There's one at Castle Hard and there are three at the British Library. Again, which would be lovely to, you know, have a bit more work done on them. I was able to photograph them and transcribe them uh, and find the, the sources for the quotations she includes. But what I find fascinating is not just the breadth of her reading. You know, she's reading 
old French. She's reading, you know, she includes quotations in Greek. This is not a girl who stopped learning. She she advocates lifelong learning. She is, you know, she she includes um, little uh, nursery rhymes in French and in Italian. You know, she is constantly pushing herself and she's trying out different forms of calligraphy and different forms of book decoration, which are so different from the ones that uh, William does and also her daughter May does. They are really geometrical and based on um, stitching, actually, on the, the way that you would decorate textiles, not the way you'd normally. It doesn't have that fluidity of a Morris design. It's much more about how you would decorate embroidery. So I would love to read more about, about those little, little uh, books, uh, commonplace books, because you know, I, I've just sort of scratched the surface. I've, rec I've, I've put them out there and I'm hoping that other people will encourage, well, first of all, encourage the British Library to digitize them because at the moment they're not, they're not visible online. You can only see them if you go to the British Library manuscript room and look at them with your own eyes, which you know, is what we should be doing, you know, seeing the real thing. But um, for those who can't get to the British Library, don't have a manuscript pass, it'd be lovely to have that material a bit more uh, engaged with, um, because it does show Jane as an active maker and a thinker, um, as well as, you know, a, a beautiful model. Because she was good at modelling as well. She was a good model, and that's a hard job too. We shouldn't underestimate that. Well, I will tie everything up. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Suzanne. Um, it, it's so fascinating listening to your work and I look forward to seeing what you do next. I will let us sign off. Um, again, thank you for listening to the Pre-Raphaelite podcast and joining Esther and myself and Suzanne Fagents-Cooper as we um, talked about her work. Thank you. <laughs>